audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to our study series on Luke Acts. All right, welcome to session 16. We're going to be looking today at Acts uh, around chapters 4 to 7. We'll be looking at the early community of believers in Jerusalem and then also discussing uh, Stephen, the uh, choosing of Stephen and his trial. So I want to start off with just a brief recap of where we ended last week. Uh, Last week, we looked at three of Peter's sermons in Acts, and one of the questions we asked was, what sort of eschatology do we see here? What sort of uh, view of the end times does Luke have, uh, is Luke portraying through these speeches? Uh, Because at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, we see this expectation for an imminent restoration of Israel. And the question we're asking is, has that hope faded away by the time we get to the book of Acts? Does this sense of eschatological urgency disappear in the book of Acts? So in uh, the 1950s, a German New Testament scholar, uh, Hans Konzelmann, uh, published a book on Luke Acts called Die Mitte der Zeit, uh, The Middle of Time. And uh, in, in English, this is the, uh, the theology of St. Luke. It's been translated, but uh, in, in German, uh, it's called the, the Middle of Time. And this book became very influential for scholars on, on Luke Acts. Konzelman believed that Luke divided history into three periods. You have the period of Israel, the period of Jesus' ministry, and the period of the church. So, in other words, Konzelman is uh, sees Luke as presenting the story of Yeshua as taking place in the middle of history, right? So, so the idea is that uh, you had Israel's history, which stretched for you know some couple thousand years, and then you have Yeshua in the middle. And then you have the church's history, which is going to stretch on for a couple years. And that this is the way that Luke viewed uh, his time. Uh, So, you know, this might imply that the period of church should last roughly as long as the period of Israel, give or take, right? And so the point is that Luke did not anticipate the end times happening anytime soon. The book of Acts depicts a new era that in theory could last for thousands of years. That's the way Konzelman interpreted Luke Acts. Uh, Personally, I think this is wrong. I don't think Luke or any of the New Testament writers, the apostles, the writers of the apostolic scriptures, I don't think any of them envisioned the then current state of affairs at the time of their writing as being the new normal that would last for thousands of years, much less consider that a desirable outcome. I think it's only from our vantage point two millennia later that we can even postulate an age of the church. Rather than the middle of time, Luke presents his story as inaugurating the end of time. The fact that he acknowledges that there will be this interim between the announcement of the kingdom and its fulfillment does not mean that he had any clue that that interim would last for thousands of years. Uh, you know, I this is this is something that you often encounter among New Testament scholars and theologians. They tend to take the New Testament as you know the writings of Paul, the the Gospels, whatever it is, as these are presenting a indefinite theology for the church age, right? This is, they're, they're presenting timeless theological truths that are meant to uh, define this thousand, you know, era that's to last thousands of years. But I don't, 
I don't think that's the case. And the more, the more I read, the more I'm convinced that the apostles saw themselves in the end times and they, they were expecting Yeshua to return, um, if not in their lifetime, at least shortly, shortly after, right? Uh, the, this, and we see this eschatological urgency throughout the apostolic scriptures. And it only makes sense if it was assumed that Yeshua would return soon. Of course, here we are 2,000 years later, and we have to reckon with the enormous amount of time that has elapsed. And how do we deal with this? Well, um, I think the clearest scriptural answer is in 2 Peter. So he's, he's writing and uh, he, talking about, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord through your apostles, um, knowing that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Right. So, so Peter was, was dealing with this already in his days. I think this is this is incredible, right? Uh, and you know, he's not writing from our vantage point after thousands of years have already gone by. But uh, he's saying, you know, they um, that there there are people who are saying, you know, well, Yeshua's not coming back. This is taking too long. Uh, things are just going to continue as they always have. And and Peter answers. But do not overlook this one fact that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Um, and it goes on. So Peter's very insistent here that there is still this day coming and it is still urgent. I mean, as far as, as far as we're concerned, we are to be expecting and waiting for this day. And these 2000 years are a testimony to God's patience <laughs> towards humanity, right? That's uh, um, God's long suffering at work here. Anyway, but uh, I, I guess the point here is that I don't think this should uh, detract from the fact that the apostles are writing with a sense of urgency. And, and I think that's clear in the book of Luke as well. And uh, as we go through the book of Acts, uh, I'm going to argue that contrary to some scholars, I don't think we see any fading sense of eschatological urgency. I think uh, this intense eschatological expectation that Luke set up for us in his gospel and in the opening chapters of Acts continues throughout the book of Acts. Um, and we will see that as we, as we continue. All right, uh, let's go on here. We're going to talk about uh, the early community of believers. And before we do that, I want us to uh, jump back to Luke chapter two. Um, if you want, you can turn there. I'll also pull it up on the screen. We're gonna look at uh, Luke two at the descriptions of Simeon and Anna that Luke gives. Um, Luke 2.25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Then jump down to verse 36, and there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, and uh, middle of verse 37, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I want to suggest that this is a portrait of the early community of the followers of Yeshua in the book of Acts. Uh, let, uh, here's a, a composite profile of Simeon and Anna that we could piece together from these verses. They are in Jerusalem, 
Uh, they did not depart from the temple, so they're continually in the temple, worshiping night and day, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit was upon them and speaking of Yeshua to everyone. I can't help but see that list and think that describes exactly the early community of believers in the book of Acts. So these, these figures that Luke places in the opening chapters are prefiguring what we're seeing here in the opening chapters of Acts. And I think Luke does this intentionally, right? We talked in some of the earlier sessions about how Luke, uh, how, how the books of Luke and Acts go together and, and they're, uh, that's why we're referring to them as Luke Acts, right? They're, there's all these themes that weave between the two of them and things that we see in the book of Luke that are uh, echoed or repeated in the book of Acts and, um, and vice versa. So the believers are in the temple, continually in the temple. Um, notice how much the believers are in the temple. Let's take a look at some of these verses here. Luke 24, 53, they were continually in the temple, blessing God, Acts 2, 46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Uh, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Messiah is Yeshua. So over and over again, the, the, we see the believers in the temple and being continually in the temple, um, just like Anna, right? So just like this profile that we see for Simeon and Anna at the beginning, the Jerusalem believers are following that, continually in the temple, praying and worshiping God. Um, we're going to see in future sessions how the outside of the land of Israel the believers continue to gather in synagogues, right? We'll, we'll see that come up over and over again, the believers going to synagogues. In Jerusalem, the temple takes the place of the synagogue, right? The believers are continually gathering in the temple. Uh, I, I think it's common for Christians to assume that the early believers just met in houses, right? The, uh, I think most Christians assume the apostles would go to a local synagogue just to proselytize. And once they won some converts, then they'd leave the synagogue and start a house church. And their goal was to establish all these house churches throughout, uh, throughout the, the world. That's not how Luke depicts things, though. We're going to see this more in a future session. Uh, as we'll see, Luke does describe believers gathering in homes on occasion, but this supplements rather than replaces their gathering in the synagogue. The same thing takes place in Jerusalem. We see uh, only, only here it's the temple rather than the synagogue that's the primary venue. So Luke describes believers in the temple. He also describes believers in homes. And in a couple places, he describes both, right? So in uh, Acts 2.46, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So, so they joined together in the temple and then um, they have breakout sessions in their homes. I, I don't <laughs> something like that. Uh, this is talking about practicing hospitality, right? They're they're sharing their lives with each other. I mean, you think about it. In Acts chapter two, three thousand people were saved. Uh, a couple chapters later, it's up to five thousand, and the and the numbers just keep growing. By the time we get to to the end of Acts, James is going to say there are. He says, see how many myriads, he uses the Greek word myriades, myriads, uh, a, a myriad in Greek is literally 10,000. So how many tens of thousands of Jews there are who have believed and all of them zealous for the Torah? Uh, so this, this number is just going to keep growing. Obviously, all the believers in Jerusalem could not fit in a house church, right? Um, the temple was the uh, obvious a logical place for them to gather. So they're gathering in the temple, they're gathering in homes, they're gathering in both. This is um, 
you know, these, these work together. Gathering in homes is not a substitute for the temple gathering. It's a supplement, right? And so what we see here uh, is the believers are very temple focused, right? The early believers here, they're, they're, they're by no means anti-temple, right? They love the temple. Luke, Luke goes out of his way to demonstrate how Yeshua loved the temple, right? Go back, going back to Luke chapter two, he loved to be in his father's house. That's, that's where he wanted to be, right? And uh, he considers it his own, right? It, it's the things that rightfully are his, uh, Jerusalem and the temple. And uh, then at the end of Luke, he's continually teaching in the temple. And then uh, the believers are continually in the temple as well. Okay, let's take a quick look at back to Acts chapter 2. We looked at this just very briefly uh, the other day, but let's take a look at it again. Uh, could I get a volunteer to read this? We're going to read Acts chapter 2, verses 24 to, sorry, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, so we see in this passage... Um... First, there's the, these four things that they're devoted to, right? In verse 42, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So uh, the apostles' teaching, uh, that's, I think, fairly straightforward what that's talking about. Uh, the early believers obviously would soak in what what the apostles were sharing and this would include uh not only learning from the tanakh but also learning the story of yeshua learning about his miracles and uh learning about how scripture points to yeshua then we have the fellowship uh it's this word in greek kunonia uh it's uh the the word uh, comes from the Greek word kunos, meaning common, right? So uh, it can mean community. It can also mean sharing things in common, right? Uh, so this is, uh, this is what we see in just a few verses later. Uh, the, those who believed uh, had all things in common, kuna, right? So um, there's fellowship, kunonia, and then holding things in common, kuna. This, those two words are related. Uh, and the breaking of bread. Now, traditionally, this phrase, breaking of bread, is understood as a reference to, like, communion, <laughs> the Lord's Supper, uh, something like that. Uh, I, I tend to take this instead as a reference to eating. <laughs> in in rabbinic literature to break bread is a common reference to uh you know sharing a meal together blessing god for the bread and uh sharing a meal together so i don't think this is talking about a sacrament or or something like that uh there are people who would disagree with me and but they, they can disagree if they want but yeah that's my take on it and then the prayers here, uh, this is, uh, uses the definite article, the word the, and uh, plural prayers, tes prosevches, the prayers, right? So on, on the one hand, I think it 
it could be understood as talking about prayer in general, but I think this is also hinting at uh, participating in the Jewish, the Torah's times of prayer. And we see that happening right away in chapter three, where Peter and John go up to the temple at the time of prayer. Uh, when we get to the story of Cornelius, we see him praying at the times of prayer. Uh, this is something that uh, I think the believers were part were participating in, in the, um, the prayers of the Jewish people, right? So everyone's selling their property. Everyone's holding things in common. Why are they, why is everyone selling their property and moving to Jerusalem? So they can be close to the temple, right? Uh, this is confirmed in verse 46. Day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So, so the reason why they had all things in common and they're selling their possessions and all this stuff is because, you know, this, this crowd of people that was there in Acts chapter 2, they're from all uh, different places, right? And they're selling all their stuff, moving to Jerusalem so they can be close to the temple. The early believers were a temple-oriented sect of Judaism. Uh, we see later in, in chapter 6 that uh, many of the priests even became believers. And so these these priests, we would presume, were still participating in the temple as priests, uh, but they saw their priesthood in a whole new light through Yeshua. And uh, that gave them, uh, from what we can see, that gave the believers even more devotion to the temple. Okay, let's uh, jump ahead to... Uh, another passage that describes a similar situation. We're going to look at Acts 4, verses 32 to 37. And could I get a volunteer to read that? Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that they sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Yosef who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Great, thank you. So here we see for the first time Barnabas entering the story. He's gonna come up later and be a significant uh, character. But yeah, so once again, we see the, that all these people from all kinds of places, Barnabas is an example, he's from Cyprus, he uh, sold a field and he brings the money to the apostles' feet, uh, he's uh, put in his lot with, uh, joined the community in, in Jerusalem there. So um, it's in, this one phrase is interesting here, there was not a needy person among them. We see that echoed in, uh, that's actually a quotation or an allusion to the Torah. In Deuteronomy 15 verses 4 to 5, it says, but there will be no needy person among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. In other words, what, what this is saying, what Luke is saying here by alluding to this verse is the Jerusalem believers represent the ultimate Torah observant community, right? And more than that, this community represents a microcosm of the restoration of Israel. So we, we see, and we've seen this already, right? With the, the reconstitution of the 12, uh, Judas died, and so they felt the need to choose another to replace him, right? Because 
the 12 are to be on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is all about the restoration of Israel. Um, and, and we see this taking place in a proleptic uh, foreshadowing kind of way in the, in the community of believers in Jerusalem. They represent and foreshadow the future restoration of Israel that's taking place. And part of that is this uh, community that they have, this kunonia, uh, where there's, there's no needy person among them. They're living out the blessings of, of Deuteronomy 15 and walking in Torah. And this is why the punishment that comes on Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 is so severe, right? Because not only are they uh, lying, I mean, that's, that's bad, but you think uh, that's kind of a harsh, a harsh punishment to, for them to drop dead just because of a little lie. Well, they're compromising this restoration that is taking place, right? It's, it's uh, putting a flaw in this picture of restoration that God is painting here. And so uh, this, there were serious consequences. Okay, let's jump ahead to chapter six. We're going to look at the choosing of the seven and we'll uh, use this as a, uh, to begin in looking at the, the story of Stephen. All right, so in chapter six, I'll, I'll read just a couple of the verses here and we'll sort of skim through these verses. But uh, it says, now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the, in the daily distribution. So what's, what's this talking about? This seems kind of like a, a trivial sort of thing. Uh, some sort of dispute between Hellenists and Hebrews. Who are the Hellenists and Hebrews? And what's, what's the issue with their widows being neglected? Well, these are, uh, these are not Gentiles. These are not uh, Greeks. Uh, these are Greek-speaking Jews, right? So both the Hellenists and the Hebrews are Hebrews. <laughs> Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews, and the Hebrews are Hebrew-speaking Jews. Right? So the Hellenists would be these Jews from diaspora communities. And from what we've seen already in Acts, there's uh, all these people from uh, all kinds of different diaspora communities, from, from Jewish communities outside the land of Israel that were there in Jerusalem for the Feast of Shavuot, that became believers, that sold their properties back home and came and dwelt in Jerusalem. And there were probably others already in Jerusalem from a diaspora Greek speaking background uh, that joined the community as well. So we've got these two, these two uh, groups and, and there's not just a language difference between the two. There's also a cultural difference between the two. Uh, the Judaism of the land of Israel was uh, a bit more isolated socially uh, from the Greco-Roman world than the Hellenistic Jewish uh, Judaism was. So, uh, yeah, so there's there's a bit of a, a, a difference in language and culture going on here. Um, this, uh, the, the daily distribution to widows, right? This is an important thing. And we read about this elsewhere in, in uh, First Timothy, Paul gives instructions for uh, these communities uh, outside of the land of Israel, the believing communities, about taking care of, of widows. And, um, and that was being done in the community here in Jerusalem, right? But uh, there is some sort of, we don't know the details of this issue that was going on, but it seems that the Greek-speaking widows were being neglected somehow. And... So the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So up to this point, uh, this distribution of money was uh, being handled by the 12, right? So all these people would sell their possessions, 
bring the money and the 12 the 12 apostles were the ones in charge of that common pot I mean, this is this is a big big job right a uh, big administrative role of of being the overseers of the jerusalem community's uh public fund right and so this was no little job that they were choosing seven people for uh there's number of things so, so these these seven deacons here when it talks about serving that word is um diacono where we get the word deacon right uh diaconia is the word for distribution it's like service or or um again it's where we get the word um deacon in english so um so these seven deacons here are like business administrators for the community uh, but this was seen not just as like a secular business kind of role, but as a, a very much a spiritual role as well, right? And they list these qualifications. They have to be men of good repute, uh, you know, people who have a good, a good uh, testimony about them, right? Uh, full of the spirit, uh, full of wisdom, and... Uh, and they would be appointed to this role. So the choosing of the seven here reminds us of an event in the Torah. Uh, well, there's two separate events in the Torah, actually. In, in Exodus 18, uh, Jethro gives Moses this advice. He says to Moses, you're going to wear yourself out. You need to appoint judges, right? And uh, here are some qualifications. They have to be, you know, uh, men who uh, hate dishonest gain uh, and uh, others. Uh, qualifications he gives right and then again in numbers 11 kind of a repeat this time it's it, uh it specifies the number that were chosen there were 70 elders chosen right so the choosing of seven leaders here reminds us of the choosing of the 70 in the torah again we see uh this this is a portrait of israel being restored in a in a in a for uh preliminary sort of way right this is foreshadowing the restoration of israel it's a microcosm of of that restoration uh so then they choose these 12 uh or sorry these the 12 choose these seven uh we have this the seven deacons that are chosen stephen uh and he's given a long description a man full of faith and of the holy spirit and we have philip procurus nicanor timon Par, uh, parmenas and nicolaus a proselyte of Antioch. So Stephen is going to get a lot of airtime uh, for the rest of this chapter and for the next chapter, and he becomes the first martyr. Then Philip is going to get some airtime after that, as uh, we'll see in, in chapter 8. Uh, and the others we don't know a lot about. Um, Luke didn't have time to tell us all the stories about everyone which uh, it would be fascinating to learn more about these people, but unfortunately we don't have a lot of details. All right, let's pick up where he's, uh, with the story of Stephen. So we're gonna see Stephen quickly coming to butt heads. Oh, oh so one thing I forgot to mention, these seven names are all Greek names. So it seems that the seven that were chosen were from the Hellenists, right? The 12 apostles are all uh, Hebrews. They're all Hebrew or Aramaic speaking Jews from the land of Israel. Whereas these seven appear to be from the diaspora or at least uh, uh, descendants of people from the diaspora who spoke Greek. And so Stephen's... Uh, language skills in Greek are going to immediately uh, be put to use. Let's take a look at that. Acts 6, starting in verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So note what's going on here this this uh synagogue of the freedmen um it's occupied by 
people, Jewish people from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, Asia. Uh, these are diaspora people. So this is these are Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem who are part of this uh, community, this synagogue of the freedmen, right? Cilicia is an important name that we should know because we're going to encounter an important figure who will occupy the bulk of the last half of the book of Acts. And he is from Cilicia. His name is Saul, or as we'll see, he was also called Paul. So Saul of Tarsus, uh, Tarsus was the uh, major center in Cilicia. He was likely among this group of people rising up and disputing with Stephen. And as we'll see at the um, beginning of chapter eight, Saul was among the people that put Stephen to death. Uh, Saul was approving of Stephen's execution. So here Stephen and Stephen is in the same sort of cultural world as Paul right now. Stephen is speaking, he's a Greek speaking Jew and he's debating with Greek speaking Jews and he's really good at it. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking and I bothered them. So they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. That's a very, uh, very serious accusation to make against any Jew, right? To speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the Torah. For we have heard him say that this Yeshua of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Okay, so what are the accusations they're bringing against him? Here, here are the charges. Stephen speaks against Moses and God. He speaks against the temple. He speaks against the Torah. And he teaches that Yeshua will destroy the temple and change the Torah. So question, which of these charges are true? Well, none of them are true. Luke explicitly frames these as false charges. Every one of them is false. Stephen was not speaking against the temple or against Moses and God or against the Torah. And he did not teach that Yeshua will destroy the temple and change the Torah. It was false witnesses who said these things um, and uh, these accusations are false. And these false accusations against Stephen foreshadow accusations that will come up later in the book of Acts against Paul. On at least five occasions, uh, opponents of Paul will accuse him of teaching against Torah and or against the temple. As we will see, however, Luke goes out of his way to demonstrate that these accusations are patently false. So, uh, note that the false witnesses accuse not only Stephen, but also Yeshua of teaching against Torah, right? Um, we've heard him say this, Yeshua of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us, right? You know, I think that Luke, as he's writing this, is responding directly to such accusations. This takes us back to Luke's purpose in writing Luke acts. I think one of his reasons for writing is to counter accusations that followers of Yeshua teach against Torah and that Yeshua himself taught against Torah. Luke is directly confronting those and framing them as false. He, he, he doesn't see them as having any legitimacy. Um, so here, here uh, Stephen is, he's sitting at the council He's, these accusations are brought and everyone looks at him and all in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What does that mean? When we hear that phrase in English, we picture, you know, this innocent childlike look, you know, chubby cheeks and a halo on his head kind of thing, you know, 
looking up at heaven, just innocent and mild and meek. Uh, that's not the image that we're supposed to get when we when we see this in scripture. Uh, if anyone remembers the story of Samson, Samson's parents, uh, his mom says to, this was before Samson was born, um, Manoah's wife says to him that this person came and that his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of the Lord, very fearsome. <laughs> so in the Bible, when it talks about someone looking like an angel, that, that's a fearsome kind of look that they've got to them, right? Um, it's not a, a meek and mild kind of look. This it, what, The point is, Stephen is filled with the Spirit, and he's about to say something important that God is empowering him to say. So, let's take a look at Stephen's speech. This occupies the bulk of chapter seven, and it's quite a lengthy speech. Uh, I forgot to go through and and uh, verify this, but it may be the longest speech in the book of Acts. It's certainly one of the longest. Um, I should have looked that up before, uh, but uh, it's 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 certainly long. I, I don't think we'll read through the whole thing, but we'll kind of skim through bits and pieces of it and try and get a, a sense of what exactly is it that Stephen's trying to get across in this speech. Despite the fact that Luke puts these accusations in the mouths of false witnesses, a lot of Christians have assumed them to be true, right? They assume that Stephen did speak against the temple and against the Torah, and that Jesus did come to destroy the temple and change the Torah. The reason why they assume this is because mainstream Christianity has historically taught those very things. Uh, Christianity historically has taught that Jesus did come and to destroy the temple and to change the Torah. So they say, oh, it's kind of funny that they had to hire false witnesses to say these things because they were actually true. Ironic, isn't it? Well, uh, that's, I think, going very much against what Luke is, the way Luke has framed this story makes it clear that that interpretation is wrong. Stephen's long speech here in chapter seven is often interpreted as an affirmation of the charges brought against him by these false witnesses. But I'm going to suggest that the opposite is true. Um, in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest says, are these things so? And, you know, these charges, is, are these true? And Stephen replies, and his reply takes a long time to get through. And sometimes you get lost along the way and think, well, is he saying yes or no? <laughs> I think it's very clear that the answer is, these are false charges. And we'll take a look at how that works. So uh, we're going to try and outline the contours of, of uh, Stephen's speech. So Stephen begins in verses 2 to 8, talking about Abraham. Right? Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, and goes on talking about the story of how Abraham was called out of uh, Mesopotamia and brought to Haran and then brought to the land of Israel. And uh, God promised him offspring, God promised him a land, uh, and God gave him the covenant of circumcision. So what's the point of saying all this? Right? Why doesn't why doesn't Stephen just say yes, yes or no to these charges? Why does he go off on this long story of Israel's history? Well, uh, a couple reasons. First of all, by re reiterating Israel's history, he is affirming these things that he's talking about, right? So he affirms the election of Israel. He affirms the temple, even in these verses, and he affirms circumcision. Let's take a closer look at that middle one there, affirming the temple. In verse 7, this is God talking, I will judge the nation that they serve, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. Take a quick look here at Genesis 15. I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward 
they shall come out with great possessions. So he's almost quoting that verse, right? The first part of it is quoting that verse. But then he changes the last little bit. After that, they shall come out. Instead of coming out with great possessions, Stephen changes it to say, and worship me in this place. In Greek, it's the word latrevsusin um, in topo uh, tuto. This, this word is used of the temple worship, right? And the word place, topos uh, in Greek, or sorry, in Hebrew, makom. This is the term used frequently in the Torah and the Tanakh and in Jewish literature to refer to the temple, the place the Lord your God will choose. That's the temple, right? And so um, this is alluding to Exodus 3, verse 12. Uh, when, um, when you have brought the people of out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, right? Uh, it sounds like it's quoting that, but in, in this verse, uh, let me pull up the Septuagint here. Latrevsete. Um, so it's that same word for like temple worship kind of thing going on, right? Uh, in this case, it's talking about Mount Sinai. But Stephen combines these verses in such a way that he's talking about coming back to not Mount Sinai, but Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered Isaac and that is the place where the temple would be built. So he's just in these opening verses already, he is affirming the temple, right? He's affirming the validity, the, the importance of the temple. And then he emphasizes circumcision. Um, God gave him the covenant of circumcision. Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. It's interesting that he emphasizes that fact, right? Uh, that's, this is the only person we, we read about in Genesis that it explicitly says they were circumcised on the eighth day, which is what the commandment is, right? To circumcise on the eighth day. Uh, perhaps in a later session, we'll come back to that point. But for now, we'll, we'll just note that Stephen is going out of his way to affirm circumcision here. That'll be significant when we get to chapter 15. Okay, so that's the first section. First section is all about Abraham, and already in this section, he affirms the election of Israel, the temple, and circumcision, right? So already he's rebutted most of the charges that have been brought. The next section, verses 9 to 16, are all about Joseph. So we have here... Um, he starts out, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him. And, uh, and then there was a famine and it goes on. Um, and it, it talks about how they went down to Egypt and eventually Joseph reveals himself. I think we're familiar with this story. But the point that Stephen is making here, he's, he's outlining this pattern. And we're going to see this pattern come up again a couple times in Stephen's speech, this pattern of rejection. The fathers rejected Joseph. They rejected the one who would save them. So the one who is going to bring them salvation is the one they rejected, right? Okay, um, so that section is all about Joseph. Then we get to a section on Moses, and this occupies the, uh, the largest section in Peter's speech, talking all about Moses. So he begins by talking about the birth of Moses, um, God's promise to Abraham, the people increasing, the king over Egypt who tried to kill the babies, and then Moses was born, right? He was beautiful in God's sight. It says uh, that when Moses was born, they saw he was no ordinary child. And there are a lot of traditions that have arisen regarding that. But uh, yeah, uh, Stephen is drawing on, on that, elaborating on that, saying that he was beautiful. Um, 
then he was instructed in the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and in his deeds. Uh, so far, nothing negative about Moses, right? Everything is overwhelmingly positive. Uh, by calling him beautiful in God's sight, by calling him mighty in, in words and deeds. Uh, by the way, uh, Stephen, or sorry, Luke has already had one of his characters refer to someone as mighty in words and deeds. That's back in Luke chapter 24, and it's talking about Yeshua. Yeshua is mighty in words and deeds. Already we're getting a sense that Moses here, he's talking about Moses, but Moses is pointing to someone else, right? At any rate, what we have here is affirmation of Moses. Beautiful in God's sight, mighty in words of deeds. He's affirming Moses. Far from speaking against Moses, what's he doing here? He's, he's speaking favorably. He's affirming him. Okay, then uh, it goes on, talks about how when he was 40 years old, tries to visit his brethren, and verse 25 is key. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Uh, and then um, they thrust him aside. They thrust Moses aside saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? That's in verse 27. Uh, so Moses fled and goes on. So we're seeing once again this pattern of the Israelites rejecting the one who was going to save them, right? Uh, and and we'll see that come up again in just a moment. Uh, then he relates the, the burning bush uh, and talks about how he's come to deliver the people from Israel. And then in verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, again, that theme, they rejected him saying, who made you ruler and judge? This man got, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So this Moses is ruler and redeemer. Uh, and again, he's setting us up to see, this is pointing to Yeshua, right? Uh, Moses is foreshadowing Yeshua rejected and then but he's he's actually the one who's going to save israel who's israel's redeemer and and ruler um and then he makes that illusion explicit by saying this is the moses who said to the israelites god will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers these patterns are going to be repeated stephen is saying right um and the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. This is in verse 38. And with our fathers, he, he received living oracles to give to us. So look at how look at how he describes the Torah here. He describes the Torah as living oracles. Lohia zonda. He's not speaking against Torah, right? He's affirming the Torah, right? He affirms the Torah as living oracles. Um, but then our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, right? We, he already used that phrase, but here he uses it again. They thrust Moses aside and in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, uh, saying to Aaron, make for us gods. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And it goes on to describe the golden calf. Okay. So we have this pattern of rejection. The Israelites again, rejected the one who would save them. Uh, and then discussing the golden calf uh, is a segue for Stephen to talk about the tabernacle and the temple, right? So once again, there's this pattern of rejection, uh, only this time it is the tabernacle that they're rejecting. I mean, uh, think about the place that the story of the golden calf has in the, in the book of Exodus. Right, uh, they go to, they come to Mount Sinai. They receive the Ten Commandments, and uh, then God gives them this, what's often called the Covenant Code, Exodus twenty-one to twenty-three, where we have this uh, this core of civil legislation that forms like the uh, 
you know, the constitution for the nation of Israel. Then in, ver in chapter 24 of Exodus, we have the ratification of the covenant. The sacrificial blood is sprinkled on the people. And God calls Moses to ascend Mount Sinai. And he goes up there and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. And what's he doing those 40 days and 40 nights? He's learning about the tabernacle. God gives him so so while he's on when he's on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights common to uh, contrary to popular uh, belief or uh, portrayals he's not receiving all this legal minutia uh, laws and civil legislation things like that he's learning about the tabernacle he's studying the pattern in heaven he's receiving the instructions for how to implement that on earth so this 40 days 40 nights thing on the on the mountain is all about the tabernacle. And what happens at the end of that? Israel builds the golden calf and Moses comes down from the mountain with the two tablets ready to build the tabernacle and he sees this golden calf. And so what Israel did in effect is to reject God's presence dwelling among them and choose a calf instead. The golden calf is a rejection of the tabernacle. And that's the way Stephen portrays it here right? Uh, this calf they made, uh, they were rejoicing in the work of their hands. God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, uh, as it's written in the book of the prophets, or in verse 42 here. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch. Um, this word for tent here is the same word for tabernacle, skene. Uh, and the star of your God, Refin, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So what Stephen is saying here is that Israel rejected God's dwelling presence among them, and that led them into exile beyond Babylon. So this is a segue into explicitly talking about the tabernacle. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations. Uh, and so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to build a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Uh, and then this has the word, but you could also translate that and, and it was Solomon who built a, a house for him. So what has he done so far? He's outlined again this pattern of rejection, Israel rejecting God and the temple leading to exile. Um, but then he affirms the temple. He affirms the status of, of the temple. And then we have these final verses, verses 48 to 50, where he describes how God's presence is not confined to the temple. Uh, we'll come back to those verses in just a moment. Uh, but I, a couple things I want to emphasize so far. Uh, so far, Stephen mentions the name Moses nine times in his speech. And everything he says about Moses is unambiguously positive. So whatever Stephen's, whatever Stephen's speech is meant to accomplish, it is clearly not a denunciation of Moses. He is not speaking against Moses. He's directly addressed that charge as false. Uh, and of course, Stephen turns the tables at the end when we get to the conclusion uh we should look at that quickly stephen's conclusion is that is that stephen's accusers have rejected both yeshua and the torah uh let's take a quick look at that uh you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears you always resist the holy spirit as your fathers did so do you so he's outlined already how the fathers rejected the Joseph, who was supposed to save them. They rejected Moses, who was supposed to deliver them. They rejected God's presence among them. Um, and, and he talks about how now you've rejected the righteous one, Yeshua. You received the Torah, but did not keep it. So Moses, Stephen has turned the tables. It is his accusers who have rejected Torah. Far, uh, this precludes the notion that Stephen was rejecting Torah. If Stephen had rejected Torah, this argument at the end would make no sense. Uh, it only works if Stephen is affirming Torah. Twice in these verses, Stephen hints that God's appointed savior was rejected at first, uh, but that a second appearance 
brings full salvation. Let's take a quick look at that. In verse 13, so they come, he, he describes two visits, two visits to Egypt. There's a first visit, but then it's on the second visit that Joseph made himself known to his brothers, right? So there's an initial rejection, but then there's this second visit, which results in them recognizing him for who he truly is, the one who saved them, delivered them from the famine, right? Uh, and we see that again in verse 35 in talking about Moses, right? Uh, during Moses' first visit to his people, they reject him. They do not recognize that he is their, their savior. But in, uh, then it says he gets sent back to the people a second time as, as the ruler and redeemer. So this is setting up a pattern here. Um, this suggests that Stephen does not see the Jewish rejection of Yeshua as wholesale or as disqualifying them as God's people, the restoration of Israel will still take place at Yeshua's second coming. Yeshua's first coming follows this pattern of rejection, and his second coming brings in the full restoration. So Moses sets the pattern for Messiah. Messiah is the prophet like Moses, and what Moses did points to that. Okay, I want us to end by taking a closer look at verses 48 to 50, because this is kind of the clincher for how we understand Stephen's attitude toward the temple. Um, so starting in verse 42, God, uh, sorry, that's not right. <laughs> starting in verse 48. So Solomon built the temple, that's in verse 47, but in verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Most scholars see this as anti-temple. They say, you know, P Stephen gets to the culmination of his speech and here he rejects the temple. You know, God doesn't dwell in in, in temples. That's, that's a silly thing. That's why the temple is useless. Uh, there's a couple problems with that conclusion because he has just, in the verses immediately before, affirmed the temple, right? So what are these verses trying to say? Uh, other scholars have suggested that, well, uh, Stephen is not coming against uh, he, Stephen is affirming the tabernacle, but he's coming against the, the temple, right? And some English translations kind of give that impression because uh, like in this translation, for example, it says the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. Uh, so the idea is that he dwells in tents. He, he, the most high dwells in the tabernacle, but not in a house, not in a temple, right? Not in a permanent structure like that that's uh, this word house here though is not in the greek so literally in greek it says um oh the the most high does not dwell in uh handmade things things made by hands so that would apply to the tabernacle or the temple okay a few scholars see this as affirming the temple and i think that's right uh First of all, what Stephen is saying here is exactly what Solomon says at the, when he built the first temple, right? God's presence cannot be confined to a physical building. Solomon prays and says, the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. There's nothing inherently anti-temple in that statement. There's nothing, um, Solomon is, is not saying, I did. I built this place, and that was, it was all for nothing because you can't actually fit in it. That that's not Solomon's point, and I would suggest that's not Stephen's point either. It does, however, address a potential distortion of the temple, right? In the Tanakh, especially in in the books of Kings, in Jeremiah, and some of the other prophets, we see that Israel at times held to this mistaken view that since God's temple was in Jerusalem, that made the city invincible, right? God, Jerusalem can never be destroyed because 
God's dwelling is here. And uh, Israel learned the hard way that that was not true. Uh, just because the temple was there does not mean that they could continue in sin and get away with it. Eventually, the city was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. And uh, so Israel can't take God's presence for granted or assume that somehow God is confined to this temple structure. God is bigger and beyond that. Think about what these verses might mean if we assume Luke is writing just after the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. The destruction of the temple does not mean that God ceases to dwell among his people or that God is somehow rendered impotent. The point, this point would be a comfort to Luke's readers who have just witnessed the destruction, the, the devastation of 70 CE. So let's just... Uh, kind of wrap this up here. Yeah, Stephen's speech does not contradict the overwhelmingly pro-temple attitude that we see in Luke-Acts. Luke tells his story in such a way as to emphasize that Yeshua loved the temple, that his followers loved the temple, and that the coming destruction of the temple was a tra tragedy which Yeshua and his followers mourned. And I believe Luke also hints that the temple will one day be rebuilt as part of the future restoration of Jerusalem. We talked about that uh, looking at the end of the book of Acts, just as Yeshua partook of the suffering of the Jewish people and the suffering of Jerusalem as in his uh, suffering on the cross, uh, his resurrection is a portent for the resurrection and restoration of Jerusalem and the Jewish people, and I believe that includes a restoration of the temple. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Luke Acts is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.